Thanks, Andrew. Well, good morning, everyone. If we don't know each other, my name is Brian. I'm one of the pastors here at Mount Hope. We get the privilege today to take a look at the word hope and just thinking about, you know, some of you may know uh, Melissa is our sister-in-law and also the kids director here. So just thinking about hope and what we're going to talk about in light of God's goodness over the weekend in some pretty scary moments. Uh, We'll get into that in in just a moment, but I'm really thankful to the Lord uh, and, and all that he has done and his faithfulness and goodness. I'm going to switch gears a little bit, if you'll, if you'll stick with me. That was very serious. I'm going to be not so serious for a moment. Can you come with me? Can, you can come with me? All right, I see a lot of head nods. Thank you. That's good. I'm just curious, and I'm not trying to incite a riot in the church. I'm not trying to create division uh, between people, but I just want to know. I, I'm just curious. For you, is it, is it real or artificial trees this time of year in your house? I, I just want to, I want to know. How many of you, it's a real tree? The real tree, all right, there's some proud people. There's some people, I can tell by the way you raised your hand, you feel strongly about this, all right? That there is this, this is where the division could come in, all right? But I want to know, accept the real tree people, we accept the artificial tree people here at Mount Hope. How many of you are artificial tree, right? Artificial tree, all right, some of you, yeah. How many, anyone no tree? There's no tree, there you go, we got some no tree people. All right, good for you, good for you. Uh, you know, we've gone back and forth at our house. We've been real tree for the last few years. This year, it's an artificial tree for different reasons. Uh, but we've had, we've had both in our household over the last few years. The tree is an interesting thing. And I, I'm not going to get into the history of it all, but we all feel, feel some sort of pressure to get something up in the house, uh, some sort of tree in the house. It's a really odd behavior, if you think about it. If you told me, if you walked outside and you saw one of these trees outside of our church, and you said to me, I, I think I'm going to cut that down and put it in my living room. I would, I would be very concerned uh, for you and your behavior. Uh, but this seems very normal. And I was reading an article last, uh, just this last week. It was by, by a professor at the Questrom School of Business at Boston University. And he said by his best estimates, he's guessing that in 2022, Americans, just Americans alone, spend about $3 billion on Christmas trees real and artificial. And the whole idea of the tree is, is it's nice to have it in the home because it just helps it feel like Christmas. It just helps it. That's why you put it in there, I think, is you want to feel, you want the house to feel like it's the Christmas season. And you want all the feelings that go with it. We're lighting these candles and they represent things like love and peace and hope and joy. And those are the feelings that we want. Having the tree inside the house just helps with that. It does strike me, though, that whether your tree is real or artificial, the end is going to be quite similar. Either it's going to go back into the box in a couple of weeks, or it's going to go out to the curb, or if you're like me with some of my, art, my real trees over the last few years, it's going to be chopped up and put in the wood pile for the fire pit later in the year. But whatever you do... Uh, it's going to be, that, that end is going to be the same. And the challenge that we face is many times the feels of Christmas go back into the box or out into the curb with the decorations as they're put away. So we're talking in this sermon series that we started last week about some of these feelings. Andrew did a, a wonderful job talking about joy last week. 
today we talk about hope, and we're asking this question. How do we take these, these emotions, these feelings, these things, and connect them to things that are real and solid and grounded so they last? Hope is an important thing, isn't it? If you have hope, you can get through some pretty challenging things. And certainly life throws us challenges from every angle. And if you truly have hope, if you have a sense of hope, you can, you can survive and people can survive some pretty amazing challenges in life. And even the day-to-day challenges, the stress of your workday, the stress of your calendar, the stress of the news headlines, all those things that get thrown at us, the things that happen, as long as you have hope, we had our former pastor of Mount Hope, he used to always talk about uh, that we have a hope tank inside of us. And you need that hope tank to be filled to a certain level in order to get through the things that happen throughout the day. And as long as you have that, you can be good. But we all know what it's like to, to lose hope. Things happen in life that are, that are not so serious that cause us to lose hope. Things happen in life that are very serious that cause us to lose hope. And we all know what that is like, that deflating effect of losing hope. Hope's an important thing. Uh, during the pandemic, uh, my, my wife bought our kids uh, this big inflatable water toy that goes in our backyard. And over the last three or four summers, it has provided endless uh, amounts of joy in our backyard. But it's this big octopus-looking thing, and, and it came with this orange uh, air blower and so I plug that air blower in, and I set, spread the whole things out. And it's pretty amazing. When I click the button on this orange air blower, this entire thing that is, that is a pretty good-sized inflatable, it inflates within seconds, and it goes from being something that's just laying flat on our lawn to something that can support multiple kids jumping on it. There's two slides. There's water running down it. There's this giant pool at the bottom that holds gallons and gallons and gallons of water. And it's amazing when the, the, this thing is inflated, what, what it can support. I can climb on top of it. The manufacturer doesn't recommend that, but I can. And it will support me as well. It's amazing what it can support. But if someone's running and they trip over the extension cord and it unplugs from the blower... It's only about five seconds before the whole thing is flat again, it can support nothing, and the water begins to run and create a pool all over the grass around it. It's amazing how quickly that can change, isn't it? And I think that's like us. For us to survive and be able to support ourselves and to get through things, we need this constant supply of hope. And it's amazing when we start to lose hope, how quickly everything deflates. And how challenging everything can be. When I think about the way I, I, I use hope in my life and I hear other people use the word hope, it strikes me that we're often talking about things that, that uh, we, we're not sure if they'll happen, but it would be great if they did. Like, I hope the Celtics win. I, I, I hope that, that I get the presents I want for Christmas. I hope that I pass this class I hope my boss quits this year and I get a new one, right? We hope for all of these things, that, but we're not sure if they're going to happen. There's a lot of wishful thinking and hoping the way that we use it. 
it's a we use hope the way that Disney movies use hope. It's like a it's like a wish, like we want it to come true, and hopefully that it will come true, and it'd be great if it did. I'm struck though that when the Bible uses the word hope, it's something very different. There's no wishful thinking when the Bible uses hope. When scripture uses the word hope, there's a confidence to it. Like the author of Hebrews, he says, faith is, is the assurance of things hoped for. That we're talking about things that are sure and that are absolutely going to happen. When the Bible uses hope, and it, it, it grounds it in things that actually will happen. And wouldn't it be great to have that kind of hope? If hope is something that we're just positive thinking about things that it would be great if they took place, the manufacturing of energy that it takes to keep us inflated and support us among the weight of everything that comes at us is, is incredible. But if we could have something that was sure, filling us over and over and over again, well, that could get us through anything. So my question for you this morning is, do you have that kind of hope this morning? As I was reading through the biblical text ab about the narrative of Jesus being born, recently I was struck by one single verse that reminds me where real hope comes from. And it's... It's interesting because it's not the verse that I would typically go to in the Bible. We read one of them this morning during the Advent candle, Titus 2, speaking of our blessed hope in Christ. That's a, that's a place I would normally go. There's all sorts of places I would normally go. This is not a verse I would normally choose to go to, and yet when I heard it and read it not too long ago, I was filled with hope. And I felt like as I was thinking about this topic this morning, this was the verse that God would have me share with you. You know, there's four books in the Bible that talk about Jesus' ministry, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We call them the Gospels. And at the beginning of the Gospel of Matthew, he starts to talk about the birth of Jesus right at the beginning of that text. And the way Matthew gets into the story is, is a little bit different than, than some of the other Gospels. Luke does something similar. But Matthew gets into the story with a genealogy. And he recounts the generations. He has this listing here of the generations from Abraham to David and then from David to Jesus. And that's how he begins the story. And if I'm being honest with you, many times when I start to read the biblical story of Jesus being born, the genealogy is one of those things that's easy to, to jump through. You want to get to the, 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 part, the more action-oriented parts. And yet as I was reading this genealogy a couple of weeks ago, I stopped at verse 6 of chapter 1. In verse 6 of chapter 1, it says this. It says, And Jesse, the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. I mean, it's just, it's just there in the middle of this list. Right? That, and Jesse was the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife 
of Uriah. And that's not a verse that I would typically go to if I was thinking about hope. And yet when I read this verse not too long ago, I was reminded of two things that are true, that give me hope, and I hope they give you hope as well. The first is this. When I read the first half of that verse, and I read that Jesse was the father of David the king, I'm reminded that no matter who you are, and no matter where you're from, no matter what your life situation is, God sees you. And he sees you differently than anyone else sees you. By the time that Jesus is born, David is quite the well-known figure. Uh, even if you haven't been in church very often, my guess is you've heard of David. Because you've heard of David and Goliath. So by this time, I mean, David has defeated Goliath. Uh, he has become one of the greatest kings that Israel ever had. And he is featured very highly in the biblical story. When the angel comes to Mary to tell her that she will give birth to Jesus, he references David. He says to Mary, he says, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And then when Mary and Joseph are traveling to Bethlehem to be counted in the Roman census, where we all know that, that Jesus was eventually born, it says in the text that Joseph went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. So within the biblical text, in the narrative of Jesus' birth, the person of David is featured. But a thousand years before Jesus was born, David was not necessarily revered the way he is in, in this text. I'm reminded, uh, as I said, about a thousand years before Jesus was born, God spoke to a prophet named Samuel and said, Samuel, it's time to anoint the next king of Israel. I want you to go to Bethlehem, and I want you to find Jesse, the Bethlehemite, and I want you to ask him to bring his sons with him to a sacrifice, because I have decided that one of Jesse's sons is going to be king. So Samuel goes and he finds this man, Jesse. You can read about this in 1 Samuel chapter 16. He goes and he finds Jesse, and Jesse brings his son to the sacrifice, and Jesse's son, Eliab, is standing there, and Samuel walks up to the sacrifice, it says, to this situation, sees Jesse's family coming. I don't know if he saw them from a distance or if he came up to them, but he walks up, and Eliab walks in front of Samuel, and Samuel says to himself, that's the king. That has to be the king. The text says he was tall and handsome. He just looked kingly. You know what I mean? Like you watch those Disney movies, you know who the prince is, you know who the king They just look like they're royalty. And almost the moment that Samuel says in his head, this has to be the one, God says to Samuel, no, it's not him. And there's this verse 
in Second Samuel chapter six, in First Samuel chapter sixteen, verse seven, it says this. It says, "For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart." All of Jesse's sons pass by Samuel. And every time, God says, no, 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 no. In fact, seven sons pass by Samuel. And Samuel says to Jesse, he says, is this it? Because I'm not getting any, any positive readings on any of these sons of yours. And Jesse says, well, I do have one more. But he's the youngest, and he's watching my sheep. And I don't know the exact details. The text doesn't give us all the details. It's just really interesting to me that when Samuel tells Jesse to bring all of his sons to the sacrifice, there's something about David and his position in the family and his makeup that Jesse says, well, I'll bring the important ones or I'll bring the ones that I think will matter in this situation, but this one can just stay out where he is in the field. So he sends for David, and when David comes, Samuel gets the word from the Lord. This is the one. This is the anointed one. And there's something about that situation that when I read Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, and I read this situation where Jesse was the father of David the king, that God saw something within David. God saw him out in the field, that even when his father didn't see him out in the field, even when others didn't necessarily see David as the one who would be called and important in this situation, God saw him. So much of our hope in our world today is tied up in whether or not other people see us or we feel like other people see us. You could be the greatest introvert in the world, and it's still important that other people see you. That they notice you. That they value you. It's a big problem in our world that people see feel unseen, even though they're surrounded by people. They don't feel noticed, they don't feel valued, they don't feel seen. And I know for me, so much of my hope can get tied up. And if other people see me, if they value me, if they like me, I hope you think I'm a good pastor. I hope you don't fall asleep during this sermon. I hope, I hope my wife thinks I'm a good husband. I hope my kids think I'm a good father. Like so much of my hope is tied up in whether or not other people see me and what they think about me and whether or not they value me. And isn't all of social media kind of that? That we would project ourselves out there, a version of ourselves that we hope people embrace and we hope they like. And it's great when they do. It's really painful when they don't. And all of us know people around us in this world. And maybe you're sitting right here this morning. Will you keep putting yourself out there? You keep hoping someone will notice. feel unseen. And it's like that, that, that hope supply gets just turned off and everything deflates. 
God sees you. He sees you. Jesus' ministry, over and over again, when he was on this earth for those three years, he shows over and over that God sees people differently than other people do. Jesus, as a rabbi and a teacher, he didn't go and pick his disciples from the, from the heights, highest of the heights in the Jewish schools and the Hebrew schools that they would go to. He went and found the fishermen, and he went and found the tax collectors, and he gave them an invitation. Come follow me. He touched the people that no one else would touch because they were unclean. The lepers, the beggars. And when the unclean, ceremonial, unclean, bleeding woman reached out and touched him for healing, he affirmed her in that moment. Where every other teacher would have chastised her. There was this time that a religious leader was giving large sums of money in the middle of the temple, and a widow came and gave just two coins, and Jesus said to his disciples, you see those two gifts? God cares more about the two coins than he does that giant bag of money. Jesus told a, to a parable about a religious leader who gave a long-winded, verbose, uh, carefully worded prayer in the middle of the temple so that everybody could hear. And then at a far-off distance, there was a tax collector who would have been considered a, a severe sinner in the corner on his knees, begging that the Lord would have mercy on him, a sinner. And Jesus says to his disciples, of those two prayers, God cares more about the tax collector in the corner begging for forgiveness than he does this nicely worded prayer that all can hear. And I feel like Jesus over and over again said God sees people and looks at people and he looks at you differently than the way the rest of the world looks. It's a powerful thing to know that the God of the universe sees you and cares about you and loves you. It's hope. In 1999, my grandfather passed away. And I remember going to his, his funeral ceremony. And I knew most of the people. I knew old friends and, and uh, family members that, of course, came to the funeral ceremony. But there was, there was one family that walked in that all, my, my dad and, and my aunts and uncles, they all immediately knew. And I didn't really recognize them or know them at all, but it was clear that there was this, this bond between them. And shortly after my grandfather's uh, death, our local newspaper ran a story about this family and my, my grandparents, and it was a story that I had never heard before. The family that walked into the, to the funeral ceremony or the wake there uh, were members of a family uh, who was called the Van family. And I found out later, and reread re the article again this week, as I was reminded of the story, that in 1975, the Van family uh, escaped their home city of Saigon just before it fell, hours before it fell. And they took with them in, in three suitcases everything that they could. It was a mother and a father and seven children. And they escaped the city and they lived for a while on a boat with 1,500 people, a boat that was designed for just a couple of hundred people. 
and they were refugees. And eventually they got word that there was a, a family in Omaha, Nebraska that was willing to sponsor them so they could come uh, to the U.S. But I had no idea that my grandparents had, had been involved in this in the 70s. The mom and dad and seven kids came to Omaha, Nebraska. They moved into my grandparents' house, which I spent a lot of time in, and I can tell you was about 1,500 square feet. My grandparents had five kids of their own, so now you had five plus seven more kids together in this 1,500-square-foot house with one bathroom and two sets of parents, one family who only spoke English and one family who only spoke Vietnamese, and there they lived together for a few weeks. And my grandmother spent time helping these children get to school. The children actually went on to do, to do quite well. They're physicians, and one was a molecular biologist, got her PhD at Cambridge University in England. Some owned their own businesses. The father, who is a pastor, uh, started a Vietnamese church in California that grew to over 600 people. And as I read their story and reread their story, this week, one of their daughters, Aileen, she said, I remember being on the boat, and our family huddled together, saying to each other, we just have to trust God. I don't know what it's like to be in that situation. I can only imagine that's a place where you feel very unseen. Having to leave your home, take everything that you own and three or can carry with you. And yet there was something about that family and the faith of their parents that they knew that on that boat with 1,500 pe other people packed onto a boat just designed for a couple hundred people, that God still saw them. And I don't know what your situation is this morning, but I know that there are all sorts of things that happen in life that make it feel like nobody sees you and that God doesn't see you. He sees you. I don't know about you. If God's looking at me and he doesn't look on the outside, he looks at the heart. That can be both comforting and a little nerve-wracking. Because I know my heart. There are parts of my heart that I don't want anyone else to see. So you're telling me that God sees me and he sees everything inside of me. And I'm reminded of the second half of that verse in Matthew 1, chapter 6. Or, or chapter 1, verse 6, it says this. It says, and Jesse, the father of David the king, reminded me that God sees us. And then the second half, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And the second half of that verse reminds me that sometimes when God sees us and he sees our hearts, he sees things that are pretty awful. 
And the question is, if God sees me, and when he looks at me, he sees things that are not good, that are, that are terrible, that are, that are living inside of me, those things that I don't want anyone else to see or know about, the things that I think, the things that I've done, what happens then? I look at that verse, and it says, David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And I, I think it might be easy to say, well, why would, why would it not say David was the father of Solomon by, and then the wife of Uriah's name, which is Bathsheba. Why would it not say Bathsheba? You could write that off and you could say, well, this is a very patriarchal society 2,000 years ago and they didn't list the name of women. Now, in many cases, that might be true. However, for Matthew, he's already listed two women in the first five verses. He's listed Ruth and he's listed Rahab, two women that are a part of the genealogy of Jesus. So the reason that he's not listing the name of Bathsheba here is something different than the the idea that he just doesn't want to list the names of women. The lack of Bathsheba's name, the omission there, speaks to the condition of David's heart. So David, you can read about it in 2 Samuel. Chapters 11 and 12, I believe. David has this moment where God looking at his heart is pretty awful. Some of you know the the way the the narrative goes. David is on the roof of his his palace, and his soldiers are at war, and he sees a woman who is beautiful bathing, and he says to his messengers, who is that? And they say that's the wife of Uriah. Uriah was one of David's soldiers who was out in battle. David said to his messengers, bring her to me. David uh, forces himself on this woman. He finds out that she is pregnant. And to try and cover that up, he brings Uriah back from the battlefield. Uriah refuses to go and be with his wife while his fellow soldiers are out in battle. Turns out Uriah is a pretty stand-up guy. And so David sends Uriah back into battle and makes sure he's killed. God looks at the heart. Some of you are saying to yourself, that's great that God looks at my heart, but here's the reality of what's in my heart. I have done things, and I have thought things, and I have said things, and things have happened to me that disqualify me from having all of this hope that I hear you talking about. David gets called out by a prophet named Nathan who comes to him and says, God's seen what you have done. I mean, David is, he's an adulterer or in a murderer, but it's even, it's even deeper than that. David has used his power and position to force a woman to be with him. You don't have to look that far into our culture to see the devastating effects of those sorts of actions. And then made sure her husband was killed to try to cover it up. I don't know on the scale of things that you could be involved in and do. That's, that's some of the worst things that I can think of. Yet there is this moment in David's life where after he's called out by the prophet Nathan, he goes and he writes Psalm 51 in which he repents of the sin that is inside of him. He repents of all of those things that are in his heart. And he says in the first couple of verses of that chapter, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. 
According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. And I am reminded that the prophet Isaiah says about Jesus who was born in the manger, that he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. And I'm reminded in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9, that John says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But you're going to have hope that is constant and grounded. I'm reminded in Matthew chapter 1, verse 6, that there are two things. One is that no matter where you are and no matter what your situation is, and whether you believe it or not this morning, God sees you. And no matter what you've done, and no matter what's happened to you, there is forgiveness for sin. If we would respond as David did in repentance, there is forgiveness for sin through Jesus Christ, and there is restoration through Jesus Christ. In all of those places that are broken. When God sees you, when you take that sort of action, when God sees you, he doesn't just see your heart and all the brokenness and everything that's inside of it. He sees you, and he sees the work of Jesus Christ inside of you. You and I need hope. And it needs to be more than wishful thinking. Wishful thinking cannot sustain us. And so much of our energy and life is put into just trying to regenerate a sense of hope. And that things are going to be okay and that things are going to get better and things are going to turn out all right in the end. And we do it in our careers and we do it with our families and we do it in our life. We need something deeper in that that infuses us with hope, that inflates us so that we can get through the things that we face. My hope for you is that you would embrace the reality that God sees you. That if you repent, he will forgive you. That no matter what you have been through, in Christ he can restore you. I'm going to invite our worship team back as we begin to close this morning. In 1719, the hymn maker... Um, Isaac, or the hymn writer Isaac Watts, he wrote a hymn uh, that he published, and he called it The Messiah's Coming and His Kingdom. It's based on Psalm 98. And the first line to the hymn, The Messiah's Coming and His Kingdom, goes something like this. It goes, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Now, in 1839, an American hymn writer took that lyric and he put it to music from Handel's Advent, the Advent section of Handel's Messiah. And what Isaac Watts wrote in the early 18th century became a Christmas carol. But Isaac Watts didn't write that hymn, Joy to the World, about the coming of a baby in a manger. Isaac Watts wrote that hymn 
about the coming of a reigning Messiah that has yet to happen. Joy to the world, the Lord has come. Yes, joy to the world, there's a baby in the manger that has come to provide forgiveness for sin. But Isaac Watts had a different coming in mind when he wrote that song. He said, joy to the world, the Lord is come, talking about the fact that not only has Jesus already been on this earth, but that he is coming again. And if you want ultimate hope in your life, it comes not only from understanding that God sees you and that he knows you, that he can forgive you and restore you. It comes from the reality that his work is not finished yet. Look at the last couple of verses of this song. These are not about things that have already happened. These are about things that have yet to happen, that are going to happen when the Lord comes again. In verse 3, it says this. It says, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Right now, you still experience the impact of sin in this world. But there is coming the day when the Lord comes that that curse will be wiped out completely. And in verse 4, he writes this. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. That there will be a day where Christ truly reigns over this earth. Hope today, real hope is found here. God sees you, and one day you will see him. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the truth that not only have you come, but you are going to come again. And Lord, I pray... <coughs> For the person that is sitting here this morning. Person who's watching us online. Who feels deflated. That the pressure of this world, the sin in this world, the reality of this world, leaves them unable to bear the weight of everything that is happening. God, even as they cry out to you in this moment, I pray that the reality of your presence with them, that you see them, that you know them, that there is forgiveness through Jesus Christ, that there is restoration for all the things that have been done. And that you are coming again, that that would so fill all of us with such great hope. That hope we would, we would be in, inflated and able to carry the weight of all that happens in this world. God, thank you for the hope that comes through Jesus Christ. Thank you for the hope that comes from knowing you. Thank you for the assurance, not that, we, that, we are, that there is wishful thinking that all this will happen, but there is confident assurance that Christ has come, has died on the cross for our sins, has been raised again, that the Holy Spirit is at work inside of each and every one of us, and that you will come again to set everything the way that it's supposed to be. Thank you for that hope and that assurance through Jesus Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I invite you, would you stand with us, and we are going to sing this song that talks about the hope that we have in Jesus, his work throughout the generations. Would you stand and would you worship him as we close this morning?